0: This podcast is made possible by our sponsors, The Interchange Bench. They can fill any professional level role in any industry and sector, both short and long term. And
1: Vital Smarts. Have you found yourself in a conversation where emotions have taken control? You can easily get lost in the moment. You might say something you don't truly mean or your meaning is misinterpreted.
0: Crucial Conversations training gives you the skills to be able to say exactly what you mean, exactly how you mean it. Visit vitalsmarts.com.au forward slash digital. STM for an exclusive offer for our podcast listeners. Over the fence, just before midnight, came Bob and Hazel from their place next door, Kirribilli, and we all danced. It's and Stephen, and we were all dancing. <laughs> Parties mingled. It was a bizarre experience, but he was always warm and
2: very sincere. I think I'd sum it up as saying it was a, an extraordinary event that's not explicable by natural or scientific laws and is therefore attributed to a divine agency. In other words, <laughs> the definition of a miracle, the Scott Morrison said, or... Um, Queensland. I don't like
1: people asking me how I voted, but I think we can ask our own children how they voted. Absolutely, you can. Who
2: don't you pick on? You don't pick on mums. You don't pick on retirees. That's the big lesson from
3: this election. Do you
0: know what the crowd does? When the movie begins, it's audience participation. So you the Baroness and you boo the Nazis and every time Maria comes on you, yay,
1: like this. I interviewed a very senior AFL executive last week. I said, did you hear a few people having a go at you on radio last night? He said, no, I was watching Game of
0: Thrones. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corrie Perkin. Hello everyone and thank you for joining Don't Shoot the Messenger. This is episode 86. I'm Corey Perkin, here again with my podcast colleague Caroline Wilson and her husband, Brendan Donahue, who is also the award-winning state political reporter for Channel 7. Hello you two Melbourne power couple Good day, you. G'day how are
1: you? Hello, Corrie. Welcome to the post-election special of Don't Shoot the Messenger. We also have another special guest we're going to talk about in a moment. We're going to talk challenges. We're obviously going to talk about the election. We've got a special book, screen and food. Brendan, former industrial reporter, is going to talk about Bob Hawke. And Corrie, I've got, unfortunately, a few apologies.
0: I have an apology. Mine first, though. On the Don't Shoot Pod Instagram account, Rach Riddell said she chuckled that after you'd complained about being called Carolyn and I had complained about being called Chloe, I then (laughs) referred to Anthony Green of the ABC election panel. And as soon as I said Anthony, Rach, I realised it should have been Anthony, but I was hoping no one (laughs) realised what I'd done. So you get the gold Banana award for and, spotting the <laughs> error of
1: Cory last week, and dare I say, we love Anthony, but he's a little bit pedantic. So, of all the people's names to get wrong, Corey—that was not the one. <laughs> anyway, he did a very fine job on Saturday night's ABC coverage. Two recipe apologies and one Anna from the op shop apology. Anna from the op shop was incensed two weeks ago when I said that she shamefacedly admitted to me that she'd voted early. She was not shamefaced at all. She enjoyed voting early. She enjoyed going down to her local village and putting her vote in. And there was nothing embarrassing about it. So the it.
0: apology is about the adjective you used. I'm sorry, Anna, what, you weren't shamefaced.
1: <laughs> Well, she wanted me to say that I need to apologise. Lars, I can't believe this. Okay, I don't put cheese in my white sauce when I make cauliflower cheese. But Mum, Julia, was horrified that I had ticked off uh, a podcast fan who'd written in and said, you left out the cheese. Yes, I did leave out the cheese. Mum does put tasty cheese in her white sauce to go on the cauliflower. Sorry, everyone. Followed up by an apology from my mother who at our Royal Women's Hospital Day at the Melbourne Town Hall. Remember she did that beef stroganoff recipe, Oh, yes, with so much butter we were all going to have a cardiac well,
0: arrest. guess what?
1: She accidentally doubled the butter. So for anyone <laughs> who wrote down the recipe and anyone, who's tried making for, for it... For anyone whose valves have clogged up in the last couple... <laughs> to all those with heart issues, a double apology. Um, halve the butter. That's all I need to say, Corrie. Your goodness turn.
0: goodness, gracious. Well, look, it has been a busy week and, Brendan, you in particular, you've had a very busy weekend or lead up to this election. How did you pull up on Saturday night? What time did you finish and where were you partying or
2: not uh, I wasn't partying. I was working. I was at the Malvern Bowls Club um, in the seat of Higgins where Katie Allen uh, Retained the seat for the Liberal Party, was the second safest uh, seat in Victoria, but she had a swing of about, I don't know, 6.5%. So there's a few nervous nellies at the start of the night. But um, the place really took off when they realised not only were they hanging on to Higgins and nearby Kuyong with Josh Frydenberg, but in fact, um, Scott Morrison was going to be returned as the Prime Minister. And um, I think I'd sum it up as saying it was a, an extraordinary event that's not explicable by natural or scientific laws and is therefore attributed to a divine agency. In other words, the <laughs> definition of a miracle, as Scott Morrison said, or um, Queensland. So if you look at some of the figures, we really are a divided nation. The, the votes, the raw votes... Um, Five million nine hundred uh, ninety-six thousand two hundred fifty-nine for Labor, and for the Liberal National Party five million two hundred eighty-five thousand three hundred thirteen. So there's far, there's not a
0: lot in it, is there?
2: Well, the difference is one hundred eighty-nine thousand votes. Isn't so you only amazing. need around about ninety-five thousand people to change their mind. It depends where the vote calls, of course, falls, of course. But the Queensland figures and WA were damning for the Labor Party. So if you look at Labor won six seats in uh, Queensland, Liberal National Party 23, Labor won five in WA and the Liberal National Party 11. So the combined WA-Queensland seats were 34 conservative to 11. So that's an absolute shellacking. The other states combined, the Labor Party rules quite easily, particularly uh, in Victoria and New South Wales.
1: So has it been a divisive result?
2: Well, it has. I mean, we've always had very close elections, a bit of a myth about landslides in Australia. If you look right back, the biggest smashing, I think, was back in 1925 when the two party preferred was 58-42. But we always tend to be around about the 48-52 mark, 53-47 mark. So this is 50.91 to 49.09. So we really sort of have... Uh, a nation that is divided. Now, there's not, I, I always argue there's not a huge amount between the parties, and that's why it's always quite close that we don't have a radical left and a radical right party. They have their own internal fights. But Australia has always been basically divided almost down the middle over which side to go for, and it's happened again. This whole election, the whole palaver of the last couple of months, came down to two seats.
0: Why did we bother? Well, really? it came
2: down to the, two, two seats changed. Last election, coalition was on 76. Now they're going to roughly 70. Well, there's been a
0: bit of change in the Senate though.
2: Oh, the Senate. Well, the Senate, no one's ever going to get control of the Senate. And um, that, that's another story in terms of getting things through. But in the lower house, we form government. It's come down to roughly two seats and roughly 85,000 people.
0: So Brendan, tell us about the polls. They got it terribly wrong. In the old days, polls used to be very reliable. And I guess there's two yeah. words for that, white pages. Yeah. And now we don't have the white pages to rely yeah. on. Yeah.
2: Well, when you have 56 news polls in a row, and we'll take news poll as the, the better of all the polls, when you have 56 in a row favouring Labor Party, I mean, it's a bit of a fool that comes out and says, I think the coalition will win. But in hindsight, they're not the fool. They were the right one. So the final poll, which is probably the more accurate one, was roughly 51.5 Labor. And it turned out Labor's come in at 49. So it was 2.5 out. Now, they argue their margin of error is 2.8. So they can go around saying their margin of error is just inside. But that doesn't tell us much when we have a history of really, really close elections. Is so this- all of the polls wrong. And there was a, a Channel 9 um, Galaxy YouGov poll, um, exit poll, At 6 o'clock, that was 52.48 saying 13 seats were going to go to Labor. And that's when everyone went completely flat, the Liberal National Party, including where I was. And the Labor Party went, oh, we're home. On top of all the other polls. And then, of course, as the results came in, Queensland put up the big finger to Bill Shorten. He's not popular there. WA did the same. Victoria did its bit for the Labor Party. They they won the new seat of Fraser, which they were always going to win. They won Dunkley and uh, Karangamite, which had been notionally made Labor after redraw. So that's a net a net three. But they couldn't get any seats anywhere else. So the Labor Party actually went slightly back.
0: Brendan, in the 2016 US election, the you know the big the big focus was Donald Trump and how he uh, was seemed to be seemingly so in touch with Middle America, and Hillary Clinton and the Democrats basically ignored it. Do we have a similar situation here with uh, too much focus on the southern states in particular, and we've forgotten about Queensland? It seemed to me that there was a lot of energy being put into Queensland. By the two leaders in particular.
2: Well, they they knew a lot of seats would um, that. Well, the the Liberal National Party knew that's that was their stronghold. But you've got to look at these two: WA and Queensland. What do you see about them? They're both resource states. They're both more less ethnically diverse than Victoria, New South Wales and South Australia. They're more the old white Australia, the older Australia. People say they're stuck in the 60s or 70s or 80s.
0: And a, and big, a big mining fraternity, as big we saw with Joel, Joel coal, Fitzgibbon, coal was Joel a big Fitzgibbon issue. in Hunter Valley. Yeah. His swing was huge against him.
2: Yeah, coal is a, a very big bit issue in, um, in Queensland. And you also had the United, well, Palmer, putting so much money into advertising all around Australia. So he gave that image as though he was really campaigning to win every seat in the low house. He won nothing. He averaged 3.5% or so. But that 3.5%, coupled with the Pauline Hanson vote up in Queensland... Which really was
1: also well down.
2: Down, but still very powerful. If it adds up to 11 to 12% all up, that flows, because oh, they the hand out, out of vote cards going back to the, the Liberal well, LNP up there that hurts Labor. So Labor's primary vote up there was shocking. I mean, in the Senate, Labor's primary vote in Queensland was 25%.
1: So we're going to talk about Bob Hawke in a minute, but we've got to focus first of all on Bill Shorten, who is obviously finished as a political leader in this country. Um, David Koch asked him quite poignantly last week or the week before on Channel 7, why is it that you are so unpopular or why don't people like you? Why don't people like him?
2: Well, I don't know if he's got the X factor. I mean, you look back with um, Labor leaders over time. Bob Hawke obviously had the X factor. Gough Whitlam had two X factors. Um, Paul Keating had the X factor. Some people don't have the X factor. Um, John Hewson didn't have the X factor. I suppose John Howard defi- defied the X factor in that he didn't have it and eventually just kept winning. And then now he probably does does have it. He's never been really popular, Bill Shorten. He was a lot more popular in Victoria than in Queensland and other states. Um, the high point was probably you know, the Tasmanian mining disaster down there when um, he spoke so well in defence of getting the, the miners out of the, um, the cave rescue. Um, but there were still people saying even then that he was using that for political...
1: I mean, I'm not making an opinion either way, but for some reason...
2: Well, like Hawke, he'd always... seen highly always...
1: organised and strategic, didn't it? He wasn't trusted. People... There, there was no... I don't know. There's the always empathy. a thought that
2: he's a bit too much... He's too scripted. So people have commented about when Hawke um, died last week that... When ScoMo, Scott Morrison went out and spoke about him, he spoke really well. He fact, did. I, I, agree I thought, with you. wow, has he got an auto cue somewhere? He, no,
0: he was really and from it was the actually, heart and, the and words very respectful.
2: Were, words really resonated. Whereas uh, Bill Shorten came out and was stilted. I think he was looking down at notes in his palm of his hand, and it didn't come across too well. So I think Bill Shorten, he's a very good speaker in terms of you know someone can get up in front of a, a hall of people, but he's a bit more uh, scripted, and ScoMo is a salesperson. He's he, proved that beyond st- doubt. St-
1: standing under the umbrella in the rain and speaking the way he did about Bob Hawke reminded me of Tony Blair after Princess Diana died. I mean, remember that unbelievable mm-hmm. Queen of Hearts speech. Mm-hmm. It was so from the heart, and I was, I was really surprised. At- and then,
0: of course, Shorten comes on, Caro, and was just... So diametrically opposed to that that warmth and sincerity of yep. Scott Morrison. If he'd it been more like Barry Cassidy
1: or yeah. Scott Morrison, and less like Bill Shorten, I mean, not that I don't know if that swayed votes. They, Maybe it was done the, by the other anyway. they,
0: You know, they talk about the moments in the election where perhaps you know these defining moments, and did they work in Bill Shorten's favour? One was obviously Bob Hawke. You know, we'll probably argue that till the cows come home. Was that well, you know did it work as a positive or a negative? But the other one was uh, the response to the Sydney Telegraph's commentary. On uh, Bill Shorten's mother. Now, Bill Shorten appeared emotional. He spoke from the cuff. He, I think, he you know won a lot of respect that, that was time. His best speech. But I have to say too, Brendan and Caro, that Scott Morrison's response to the Telegraph's coverage of that I thought was also very fair. You know, he he uh, he didn't approve. He didn't agree with it. He sent his regards. Uh, you know, I thought actually he was he well, could have played the man, but he didn't. He played well, the well, issue. It was
1: smart, but it was also a good moment in a pr- pretty well, dirty campaign. Who
2: don't you pick on? You don't pick on mums. You don't pick on retirees. That's the big lesson from this election. And you're right about what Scott Scott Morrison's reaction was perfect. If he had have come out and said, I think the Telegraph's got this right. Bill Shorten was sneaky the other night. He didn't mention his mother went on to become a lawyer in her fifties and to win the Supreme Court prize and to write the the education legal uh, textbook for Australia. Now, that's just nonsense. Yeah. People love, love mums, and that was the best speech Bill Shorten made uh, in the entire campaign. But Scott Morrison absolutely nailed it in his reaction. I mean, the Herald Sun didn't, in Melbourne did not run that story. Now, obviously, a big news, uh, news-limited newspaper, it, it balked at running that story. I gather, so there Andrew, was some I gather diversity. Andrew Bolt it,
0: was involved in that uh, decision-making well, well, Yeah, well,
2: yeah and Andrew Bolt, to give him his credit, came out and said he wasn't – I can't remember his exact words – Uh, But he came out and said he wasn't comfortable with that story running and they didn't run it.
1: Before we move on to Bob Hawke, Brendan, um, you're already talking about the ramifications for Victoria. And of course, you know, there's there's a Labor government here that came in with a huge majority, which was a positive campaign, as opposed to the very smart and quite negative campaign that won the federal election. Um, East West Link, First home buyers, what are going to be the big ramifications for this change of government for Victorians?
2: Well, we'll have argy bargy about the East West Link project, which is uh, for a you know a six or eight kilometre tunnel to run across the northern suburbs of Melbourne for many more years. The federal government has offered four billion dollars to um, start this road or tunnel, which is worth maybe eight to ten billion. So you'll have to toll it to get the uh, the other funding going, whereas Daniel Andrews won the last two elections partly on promising not to build it. So he's knocking back a cheque for $4 billion, which on the surface looks like stupidity, but he can't turn around and break his major election policy to build a road. He's concentrating on building the North East Link, worth like $15 billion, joining the M80 to the Eastern Freeway, uh, north of Melbourne, but also building the Metro Tunnel, um, five new stations under Melbourne for $11 billion. So he's saying that... um, He's saying there's, we need the there's so many so many engineers <laughs> and constructors around and we've got $26 billion worth of projects underway and he's not going to break a major promise to build the East-West Link but most people want to go south anyway down Hoddle Street. They don't want to go East-West Link, about 13% do.
1: Well, it's going to be a fascinating so, few months. guys,
0: on to Bob Hawke. We all had a connection with Bob Hawke. Um, Mine started as a as a child because the Hawke family lived around the corner from our place in Sandringham and our dads were friends. They became quite close through Bob's role at the ACTU and my father's at the age. And then I first met Bob um, again after childhood times when in 1981, Cara, remember the Keep South at South movement? To keep yes. South Melbourne in South Melbourne. And I was a sports journalist, a footy writer at the time. And on a Sunday afternoon, I was sent down to a meeting with Graham John and... Who was a John, great friend John Keogh and all yep. of those people. And they'd asked Bob Hawke, who was then the new newly elected member for Wills, if he would come and mediate this meeting because Bob was a you know long-standing South Melbourne supporter. And so uh, th- I remember meeting him again then. And a few months later, he bizarrely hosted the Mike Walsh show for a week and uh, rang up Neil Mitchell, who was then the sports editor of The Age, and said, That young Corrie Perkin, who was at the Keep South at South, I'd like her on the show when I'm doing the show to talk about what it was like covering football as a woman so that was a really awkward difficult moment my mother kept the DVD I tore it up and then another another thing well you're
1: not very good
0: Oh, it, it was just shock. Carol, I was 20. Like, it was just a shocking television performance, oh. never to be seen again. Yeah, I th- Jane, oh, Miss Jane, don't you even think about putting Google in, putting that in, because it doesn't exist. <laughs> um, and then another bizarre time, I was at, at Multi House on New Year's Eve. Don't ask how I was there. And I uh, over the fence, uh, just before midnight, came Bob and Hazel from their place next door, Kirribilli. And we all danced, Sunini and Stephen, and we were all dancing on the floor. The the parties mingled. It was a bizarre experience, but he was always warm and very sincere. Well, it's been
1: fascinating, and particularly for our children, hasn't it, Brendan, watching all the memories of Bob Hawke? I mean, we all watched the documentary on the ABC a year and a half ago now, but they just can't believe that there was a leader who behaved like that, who spoke like that, who, who resonated like that.
2: Yeah, different time. He lived a very full life. I was an industrial porter back in the eighties, up at Trades Hall. I came in at the tail end of his um, ACTU presidency, but the stories were legendary about um, you know beer drinking, uh, billiards uh, being at the John Curtin Hotel. Uh, there was nudity involved often. But he was
0: nudity playing billiards and
2: drinking beer down at the, he, uh, was the a, he was Ham a house.
0: fantastic ACTU leader, wasn't he?
2: Oh, he resonated with a, with a lot of people and the, it was uh, really turbulent times too in the 80s. You had the middle industry round, you had the BLF, eventually was deregistered and they're obviously back now under an, another name. They were really strong times. You got, you got the Accord going, uh, industry superannuation, which then became legislated, uh, reinvented Medicare. Um, I had a personal connection. My mother was a, uh, a stenographer And she worked for a temporary um, agency and she temped at the ACTU with Albert Monk uh, before Bob Hawke and with Bob Hawke and then with Norm Gallagher when he was at the BLF. So mum used to come home and clatter away at night on a typewriter. And I thought, I've never seen her work so hard. And that's because she was working for the ACTU at the time banging out stuff on an Imperial 66 typewriter.
0: Did that spark your interest in that whole Oh, sphere? I
2: didn't. know I was too young at the time, I suppose. So that, that would have been... Gosh, the
0: secrets your mum would have known.
2: Yeah, that's right. And banging stuff out in our lounge room in Glenroy on, uh, with the carbon behind the paper. I should have kept some of the copies at the time. And the Trades Hall, John Curtin Hotel used to rock. Now, that's where Steve Brax, uh, Daniel Andrews and Bill Shorten went for the can of Bob Hawk beer did, on um, Friday. Did, did
0: John Brumby not get the Memo?
2: Don't know. John Brumby never won an election as a. So do you think that uh, was quite a strategic invitation? John Cain wasn't there, although he won three. He might not have been available. I don't. I don't know. Um, It's a very good photo that. Uh, But the John Curtin has changed a lot. It used to be the real drinking man's pub and women's pub for the trade union movement, directly opposite Trades Hall in Melbourne. But it's all changed now. It's more of a um, indie rock sort of music geek <laughs> Cafe place now in the union. Cara, what about you? Women Did... drink elsewhere.
1: <laughs> Did you have ballpark memories? Oh, I interviewed I... him once or twice as a journo and I was sent up by the Sunday age when um, the leadership spill was on. So I, I was in that press conference where he talked about being a considerably poorer man and how, oh, that, that was in his family was there, Hazel and Rosalind, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, um, and then the next day I stayed in Canberra and we went and covered his last media performance as Prime Minister and it was concerning Aboriginal deaths in custody and it was in a a big room in the new Parliament House and he became very emotional and in fact broke down in tears. I think, you know, he he admitted later that that was his one, one of his few, well, I'm sure everyone has failings, but he really felt he could have done more in that area and he talked about it being in our hearts and in our minds and it had to be a go-to project, you know, forever for Australians going forward. So, yeah, I, I just, I look back and um, Anna from the op shop prompted me that one of her favourite moments, and she still gets a chuckle, is when um, Bob and Blanche came out as being, you know, the absolute, you know... Loved up couple that they were in the white terry toweling robes.
0: Remember those the, photos? I think it was for the Women's Weekly, Women's wasn't Weekly? it? Photo shoot. <laughs> Nobody's
1: brought them up. There's been the you know every you know the bosses a bum and all the other famous ones the
0: Richard Carlton spat, the Barry Cassidy spat, but we've no, never seen the terry Towling. Oh, I think there might be a reason. I think Blanche is holding on to <laughs> that footage like I'm holding on to mine. Um, before we go on to well, valet Bob Hawk, and you know then what a great contributor to our nation he was. Before we go on to crush of the week. Though, Caro, I just wanted to ask you quickly how are you going with your challenge? Well, this is, um, I'm going to do something meaningful with each one of my
1: children in the month of May. I've moved to the next step, Corrie. I've made a date with all three. Over the next seven days, and next Tuesday when we come in, or next whenever we do the next episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger, I will be reporting back as to how each
0: date went. Oh, good! Can't wait to hear. Yes, they're all doing different things. They all involve different facets. All right, well you can report lives. back next week, and I haven't done my thousand steps yet, but it's coming. Hopefully. I've got a great one for June, though, um, but more of that next week. Now, our crush of the week is thanks to the Interchange Bench. Whenever there's a gap in your essential staff team, fill it with a pro from the Interchange Bench. All professional level roles, all industries and all sectors, both short and long term. Just call one 800 i or see interchangebench.com.au. And, Brendan, I believe you have a crush.
2: I do, Corrie, and my crush of the week is the volunteer staff at the Malvern Bowling Club in the shadow of the Big Gabrini Hospital in the seat of Higgins. I was there on Saturday night. It was all set up for us to go there. We were the, the pool crew for the national media. We had the link band and the cameraman and myself and a producer. We arrived there. It was all set up with the Liberal Party, not a problem. Of course, we got there. We were then kicked out of the Malvern Bowls Club by someone from the Liberal Party who said they needed more space. And I said, well, I'm just standing here in the corner. I'm not taking up that much space. I'm Didn't be a they want bloke.
0: television coverage? Well,
2: they wanted to boot us out. And then about 15 minutes later, they realised what this young Liberal guy had done, and they invited us back in, profusely apologised. But the staff at the Melbourne Bowls Club, they worked their butts off all night. As the party got, got into full swing when Scott Morrison was about to win or was winning, every five minutes you just heard that clatter of beer bottles going into the green bins outside. They were drinking so much grog. Um, and the pass around food. The staff were just terrific. Now it's, it doesn't have too many members of Malvern Bowling Club. I'm told about 70 active members, but the volunteer workers there were just terrific and warm and inviting, as everyone and, should be on election night.
0: And little point sandwiches, Brendan, or sausage no, rolls? No, mainly
2: little quiches and sausage rolls. Oh, there which you is go. All you need.
0: Yep, that's fair enough. That's good. Well, that is a very good crush. And to all volunteers of all political parties all around Australia, you've all done an amazing job as usual. That's our crush of the interchange, crush of the week. Thanks to the interchange bench. And uh, it's over to you again, Brendan, because I think after your goodwill and bonhomie, you're actually grumpy about something.
2: Oh, yes, I am grumpy. A man of many parts. I am grumpy. <laughs>
0: Gosh, he's, one minute he's happy, the next minute he's what a What a fun life you have living with this man, Caro.
2: Okay, so we have three years of uh, politicians being at their throats and then we have the election campaign where they call each other liars and they just throw mud at each other constantly, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and then one wins. Well, one's always going to win. One's always going to come second. It's never a draw or rarely a draw. It can't be a draw. And then the one who wins, the first thing they say, I want to bring the nation back together. Let's end the bickering. And how (laughs) long does it last? I reckon about 48 hours. 48 hours. You're suggesting
0: our politicians are hypocrites. No. went on
2: Sky News and gave an interview to uh, someone there, and he said, the first thing he said, I want to um, reunite the nation and end the bickering. Well, I tell you what, that will last. That'll be over by the time you're listening to this podcast. Now,
1: it reminds me of, um, in a much smaller way, media awards nights. You know, like you go to the Quill Awards or the Walkley Awards, and journalists all get together, and there are great speeches about Bonamy and together we need to do this, and we've got to stop picking on each other, and we've got to all be, and one either Fairfax or News Limited or now Channel Nine, the Age, whatever they're referred to um has a big win, and you pick up the paper the next day and whoever's, you know, News Limited News Corp only...
2: scoops the pool.
1: <laughs> Fairfax scoops the pool. Never cover. Scoops they, the pool. N- they, totally they never ignore. cover the other person. <laughs> they t- you go, what happened to all that great, you know, those heartfelt conversations we
0: had at 2am at, you know, the bar in Crown Casino? What and- reporting? You know, you win the gold quill, which is the kind of the mega award, And the opposition won't even report who won the gold
1: (laughs) quill. And if it's someone from Channel 7 and and you have won the gold quill, Brendan, Channel
2: 9, ignore it and vice versa. Channel 9 didn't even run it when I won it. Oh, Brendan. that's so mean. (laughs) Hugh Nailen, you should have lived with it.
1: So I guess we're saying that this obviously um, is a national
0: trait. Uh, okay, so we are we now have a very special guest, Carol and Brendan, who will be joining us and this is Jeff Fleming. Jeff is the general manager of Vital Smarts Australia and New Zealand. And we thought, Carol, that we didn't know very much about Vital Smarts when they came on board as our wonderful sponsor. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't it be lovely to actually get Jeff in and have a bit of a chat about the things that the company does? So, for all potties who are involved not only in industries and organisations and businesses, but even in your own personal life, you might just find that Vital Smarts has something to offer you. Jeff Fleming, welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger.
3: Thanks, Corrie, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here. appreciate the opportunity it's to uh, great. It's
0: really, join you this morning. It's really great to have you, and thank you for supporting our podcast. Vital Smarts, Jeff, as we know, is an international leadership training company, and you provide courses and coaching, as I said, to enable organisations to achieve new levels of performance simply by changing employee behaviour. But I imagine in changing employee behaviour and management behaviour is not always that simple.
3: No, and you look at the work that, um, and some of the history about obviously who, who we are and the work we do globally. But um, all the work done by Smarts has been based on more than thirty years of research, so it's really well grounded in the fundamentals of human behaviour about you know how we can behave or how you know, poorly we can behave under pressure. And we talk about you know the caveman fight or flight, and that plays out because it will for thousands of years will play out. Um, in healthcare environments, in government, in you know private organizations, in how people avoid and how people deal you know well or deal badly with problems so thirty years ago though, the workplaces were very different places to what they are now. Oh, well, if you go back from you know the, the, the millennials that are joining organizations these days and back to uh, organizations I guess in those days that were very hierarchical So it's like you know remember when I was a kid, I called my parents friends uncle and auntie and everyone else was Mr and Mrs and that was the way it was in a workplace but you know the whole world has changed
0: I was really interested to uh, receive from your gang Jeff uh, an example of the sort of work that you did because mm-hmm. I was very hungry to kind of know how does it actually work and so the example that was sent to me was the city of Geraldton yeah. uh, in WA which the municipal the municipal officers an organisation itself, was having a bit of a problem and new, a new regime came in and they called you. What was your role and what did you achieve?
3: Yeah, great question, Corrie. And like a number of um, local government we've spoken to around Australia, they were struggling, like really struggling financially. And being a public organisation, this was information that was openly available. And, um, so if they bring in the financial people, they can really just attest, yes, this organisation is struggling. But when you start to dig deep and look at the culture of the organisation, you'd find that many people are disengaged, uh, poor performers, are not, it's not, they're not dealt with well, people aren't holding other people accountable. And the tougher the environment gets in there and the tougher the culture, uh, as humans, we tend to just avoid. So we avoid those conversations. And in, in, in uh, Australia, we see many organisations measuring their culture and they'd call it a culture of avoidance. So they would have had a massive culture of avoidance and disengagement. How did it show? It just showed in very poor results and very poor financial results.
1: Are some organisations
3: more susceptible to bullying than others? I think so. I think that, and it's probably it's probably different, care around the world, but I think organisations that are traditionally very hierarchical, military, you know, military, I think police force and often healthcare by way of the fact that very senior clinicians run these organisations and they're often under a lot of pressure, it just naturally causes people to just go to, I call it base (laughs) behaviour. So we'll operate just to get things done regardless of what impact it has on people and
0: relationships. Almost like we're in a bunker. Absolutely. So with Geraldton, uh, what did you do
3: to turn it around? Well, there's a number of things, and uh, Brad Rowlett, who's on our team uh, based in Sydney, did an amazing job working with the um, city of Greater geraldton But the first thing was really to understand what the problem was, and it broke down to a couple of different areas, as we said before. People were disengaged. People had no confidence in their managers. People liked to work at the organisation from a, from a perception perspective, but they just didn't have confidence in the managers. And what ends up happening is people who are high performers and like a good environment leave. And the rest of the people that are left in the organisation basically just manage and maintain. So you
0: just got everybody basically talking and working yeah. through the issues.
3: And first step was and understanding that the first step was to um, train the, the most senior people, including Ken and, the, uh, and the, the leadership team, in the two-day crucial conversations training. So having said that, it's completely counterintuitive to how we operate under pressure. So if I'm, you know, if I'm fifty or sixty years old, I have behaved the same way under pressure my whole life. Two days is not going to make a difference. So the next step for us then is to train internal trainers, and we train 10 trainers. We're doing training certification as we speak at the moment in three different locations around Australia, and we'll teach those trainers how to, over time, not only deliver the training, but how to help people practice, use the skills, embed the skills, and gain confidence that over time, that behavior change is definitely evolutionary. It doesn't change overnight, and it takes time. So the role of these people is to help people
1: Sorry, does, does yeah. electronic media, I mean, I, I, found, I find a lot in the workplace that there are more and more people who are more likely to send you an email, even though they might be sitting two offices away, than come into your office and have a conversation. And that is something that drove me nuts at certain times in newspaper offices, certainly towards the end of my time, full time, yeah. as a reporter. It, th- that is something that is, is a new barrier,
3: isn't it, that wasn't around 40 years ago? Yeah, absolutely. And I think emails and texts... Yep. So my daughter who runs a childcare centre will get lots of texts at interesting hours advising that people aren't coming in and things happen. But isn't it, text is a very convenient way of us not having to get feedback for something we've directly done.
0: That's right. But then you, Avoidance. Don't, you, but you, and you don't have an opportunity then to actually no. say to the parents, so no. is, your, is your child okay? You know, is no. this something that we need to know about? Is there, you, you don't get to have that conversation, do you? No,
3: exactly. And it just it becomes
1: convenient, yeah. So if, for example, the Liberal Party called Vital Smarts and said, we have a problem with women, we, we, either we're trying to get more women into the organisation, I mean, you know, all the, all the issues that have been pointed to, for example, in this area,
3: what would Vital Smarts do? What would be step number one? Uh, the first thing we would normally do is we'd just normally do like a survey and we'd get better understand what behaviours are happening within the organisation. That's pretty easily done. But the first step for us is always to run the two-day crucial conversation. I mean, it's there's millions of people at the moment around the world being trained, using the skills, practicing the skills. That's always the first place. And it just creates a, a, a framework of how people should behave and what it tends to do. It tends to, with the people who want significant change, have now got the tools and skills and confidence to lead the way in making the change.
0: And um, what about the hashtag Me Too scenario over the last couple of years, where particularly women, but also men too, have felt that they can come forward and say, I have been sexually harassed at work. Yeah. Is that an increasing component of your work?
3: Yeah. And look, if you look at the, some of the research, and you may have seen about the research that comes from Volta Smarts around emotional inequality, and you look at the basis of how we give people the tools, skills, and confidence to speak up, bravado by itself is never enough. People can feel as brave as they like, and people feel braver, what they tend to do is they tend to speak up badly. So the key is not only to give people the the confidence, and how we do that is giving them the skills. So if you look at the research, it shows there's three steps around helping people set up why they're about to say what they're about to say, what I'm going to do, how I'm going to do it, and what I'm concerned about, but it's all about I'm going to get my intent right up front before I do anything, and we give people the, the skills and confidence to do exactly that. Well, we thank you so much for supporting
1: Don't Shoot the Messenger. Great and, to be here. Thank and particularly
0: you. our BSF section, Jeff, uh, books, green and food. And before we go on to Caro's book, I believe you have a little
3: e-book that you would like to tell us about. Yeah, this is the research, again, undertaken by Smarts, and it would have been taken... You,
0: you know, know I'm a bookseller, so I'm just not exactly <laughs> on board right. with the, That's right. with the, but I'll, I'll, we'll go with it today. Be almost comfortable
3: with it, I understand. <laughs> So the e-book and uh, the um, emotional inequality was something I think the research just probably wasn't, wouldn't have been done 20 or 30 years ago, but it's a right here right now, and it talks about uh, what happens when particularly women speak up and, and how they're seen differently to men when they say something wrong and how it affects their competency, their, their perceptions around their competency, uh, and how it affects their future opportunities, and um, if people want a copy of it, all they need to do is just go to our website at www.virusmask.com.au. In the bottom right-hand corner, there's a chat and just put in their emotional inequality and we'll get a copy of the research through to them.
0: And if any potties are listening and they think that they would like to reach out to your organisation, what's the best thing to do via the website or would you prefer a phone call and a conversation? <laughs> now,
3: again, same thing on our website. And we get calls every day from organisations, corporations, individuals needing help, uh, I guess go to the website and you'll see right in the middle of the page you'll see I need help now is a good place to start, and at the top's my mobile number and everything comes through to that sort of right across Australia, and New Zealand.
0: Terrific, thank you, Jeff Fleming from Don't Shoot the Messenger. Caro and I are so appreciative of you coming today and um, telling us a bit about Vital Smarts. Thanks. And if
1: you and if you get onto the Vital Smarts website, say that Corrie
3: and Caro sent you. Exactly. Absolutely.
0: Yes, you want it. You want some feedback, don't Absolutely. you? That people actually listening
3: to us. <laughs> Great for our marketing. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Corey. Thanks, Caro.
0: Caro, BSF, and you have a book. I do, Corrie. A real book, as opposed to Jeff's
1: ebook. that's that's it. and um and thank you again to Jeff, but and vital smarts. but Corrie, look, this is something I've revisited off the back of a tip you gave me um, about a month ago. Dominic Smith, who is a Sydney author who now lives in Seattle, He's written up until the one that we're about to talk about, had written four books, but his fifth novel, or maybe the fifth one is the one that's coming out next month, his fourth novel, The Last Painting of Sarah DeVoe. Is that how you pronounce it?
0: We always said Sarah DeVos because Sarah has an oh. H on the end. And okay. Anyway. Well, it is just... I mean, I'm from Dutch extraction, I so I between, know how to actually. say DeVos. It's in between
2: what both of you are saying.
0: But this,
1: anyway. this is a sweeping novel that I read two two or three years ago and I, when it first came out, and I reread it over the summer. It is just... I mean, it, well, it, it, it starts off in New York. Um, the owners, the, um, a, a couple who own this unbelievable old Dutch painting, it, in, it, it sweeps back into 17th century Amsterdam and Holland where the original artist painted this painting and to Sydney, Australia, where a senior art historian... Or art executive, a curator,
0: curator, curator, yeah, curator together a,
1: an um, exhibition did something when she was very young and living in New York that she that comes back to haunt her. Now I, I just thought this was the most beautifully crafted novel. I absolutely loved it. It's a great novel about the art world, about wealthy New York, about 17th century Netherlands and, and Holland, and obviously, of course, about the art world in Australia. It's sort of a mystery, and it's absolutely wonderful. So I read it again because you had mentioned to me that Dominic Smith had a new novel coming out that comes out next month. It's called The Electric Hotel. It's it's a novel about the silent film industry and it's got one of my favourite things, a a film that didn't make it, that has disappeared, that through the efforts of a modern-day journal who goes back to visit the old filmmaker, they start to craft it together again. But I just think it sounds like the most wonderful book, and I think it's coming out next month. Is that right? It,
0: it is indeed, and it's, again, Dominic Smith playing with the three or four different timelines. So uh, readers have to be on their metal a bit and be aware of it, but he's a beautiful writer. And it's, I'm so glad that you mentioned the last painting of Sarah DeVos Caro because Dominic Smith is coming to Australia to do a, a, an author's tour and he will be appearing on media that we hear like the John Fane program or Conversations with Richard Fidler and so on. So it would be great if people actually had that book that you've mentioned today under their belt before they enter into the world of the interview.
1: Before you read The Electric Hotel, go back and revisit the last painting of Sarah DeVos. And I just want to give a quick plug to the second of Alex Rance's Tiger and Friends series. It's just come out, Rabbit's Hop. And anyone who reads it will see a little bit of similarity in a very, very simple way with the Jack Revolt, Nick Revolt story. Um, it starts off in Tasmania, although it's not called Tasmania, and it's just a lovely, lovely piece of work. Mm. And it's a bit sad Alex isn't playing at the moment, Looks Brendan. like an
2: absolute classic, that book. <laughs>
0: but, the, but the upside of Alex not playing is the fact that he will uh, be writing another one hot off the mark after this one. So uh, it will be in our bookshop, I think, at the end of this week. So look out for that one. Lovely big yellow cover with black writing. Oh, and I wonder why.
1: And the people of Um, Vital Smarts would do very well to read Conrad Marshall's book about Richmond's premiership year because it was really Vital Smarts that they employed from the end of the previous season, 2016 to through 2017, where everybody Mm. just started speaking about their frailties.
2: Yeah, Essendon's working on a book. It's called Joey Jumps and Kicks Straight.
0: (laughs) Corrie, you've got a screen. Who bought him? I have. This is a Netflix series, and I have been addicted over the weekend. And I have watched series one and part of series two. Both series have eight episodes each. It is called Marcella, or as they pronounce it, Marcella. Which take is notice, a- Brendan, because we're always looking for something on Netflix. Mar- mm. never heard Marcella, of this. and it's described as a British Nordic noir. I'm not sure how you can be British and Nordic, but it is made by the same producers as uh, those people who made the Bridge. Remember the wonderful Bridge? Yes, we love the Bridge. Swedish Danish. Uh, So Marcella first went to air in Britain in 2016 And it stars Anna Friel uh, Who I couldn't recall I know her face, Cara But you reminded me the other day of different things that she has been in But a really beautiful actor in her early 40s, I'm guessing And she plays a police detective, Marcella Backland Who has taken time off from the force to raise her family and Marcella was, we gather, as the story goes on, was a really brilliant detective in her day. And she's called back to work to work on this cold case of 11 years ago. A serial killer 11 years ago evaded police. But now there have been some, whether they're copycat or whether the serial killer is back, there have been very, very similar types of murders occurring. And I won't tell you how they, uh, how, what the murderer does to his or her victim. But as usual, there is the flawed uh, police detective. You know, thing going on And so running parallel to the murder plot Is Marcella's own backstory. You know, and I'm not giving anything away Because it happens in the first five minutes Her husband uh, says that he is leaving her He's bored, he wants time out And he doesn't love her anymore So that sends her into a tailspin And she has to pick up the pieces uh, Two kids at school And working on this cold case So it's a really fantastic series A cast of stars, Caro and Brendan Um Including in this one, Sinead Cusack, who is married, of course, as we know, to Jeremy Irons, and Laura Carmichael, who I keep thinking, I have seen you, where have I seen you? And she plays Lady Edith in Downton Abbey, and a couple of other terrific actors, too. So that is Marchella on Netflix,
2: highly recommend. And that. if it's British Nordic noir, does she eat a Cornish pasty in a sauna?
1: <laughs> oh, who, who does very that? Very
2: quick.
0: Very who, who, I'm sorry, but who does that?
1: <laughs> Corey, you also have a recipe, speaking I, of Cornish pasties. I do indeed.
0: So I had a little Don's party on Saturday night and uh, it was not It was a very small affair, just six or seven of us around the table uh, and watching the telly, of course. I thought you
1: were just doing a sausage sizzle.
0: We did a sausage sizzle and with mash, uh, which was delicious, but I whipped these up. I thought I oh, just would it really be nice to have a nice pass around food. And I found in a recipe book, which is called Hors d'oeuvres, funnily enough, Crispy Carrot and Spring Onion Cakes with Feta and Black Olive – And this is what you do. Uh, Well, the ingredients are 250 grams carrots grated, 250 grams potatoes grated, and you've got to squeeze the potatoes dry, of course. Two spring onions, I put about four or five in, one tablespoon of plain flour, one egg beaten. I actually put two eggs because it wasn't moist enough. Salt, pepper. Uh, two tablespoons of sunflower oil, and then some feta and black olives to put on the top once you've done it. You mix the carrot, potato, spring onion, flour, egg, salt and pepper together and make sure it's reasonably moist enough that you can make a little ball. You heat up uh, the oil in the frying pan and put the little balls into the frying pan and flatten them so they're like a little fritter. Like a latke. Exactly right, Caro. Good Polish there. Um, and then you turn them once or twice and just make sure they're crispy and golden. And then, of course, the, and then you drain them on kitchen paper. And the beauty of this, of course, is that you can reheat them. Now, we had them that night with the olives and the feta. They were delicious. The following night, I had a few left over and I actually served them with soy sauce. And so Pete and I dipped a few in the soy sauce. It was brilliant. So They sound delicious the but fiddly. No, not fiddly at all. It sounds fiddly. It's really not. Once you grate everything, it just you just chuck them in the pan and away you go. Highly recommend that. Now, six quick questions, guys. Mine to you first, Caro. Is it appropriate to suggest to your kids how they should vote or ask them how they have voted?
1: First one, no, your children have to vote for who they believe in, and um, that's absolutely no-no. You should not tell your kids how to vote. Oh, whoopsie. Um, but <laughs> I think it's absolutely, I mean, it's a good conversation. I don't like people asking me how I voted, but I think we can ask our own children how they voted. Absolutely you can. Yes. Oh, okay, then. No, then yes. Brendan, who was your favourite on the eve of Dreamtime at the G, who was your favourite Indigenous Essendon player? Uh,
2: Paddy Ryder. Until he went to Port Adelaide and now Anthony MacDonald Hyphen Tiffin Woody. (laughs) (laughs) Go tipper.
1: Remember that Brisbane game earlier this year? Yeah. He was a
2: beauty.
0: Caro, Game of Thrones, yes or no? Never seen an episode. Read a book? George Martin book? Have I read
1: the book? Yeah, no, it was I've... about 27 books. But... I didn't even know it was based on a book. I've never oh seen – you... <laughs> I don't think Brendan or I have You've just down... lost
0: about 40,000 listeners of the podcast there.
1: Not my fault. I've never read it, never seen it. I mean, I'm sure it's unbelievable. I interviewed a very senior AFL executive last week who said um, – I said, did you hear a few people having a go at you on radio last night? He said, no, I was watching Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny, after after the 18 club CEOs had met.
0: My, my Ballarat family have a Game of Thrones dinner each week. Game of Thrones, what did I say, Game of Thrones? Bless them, good luck to them,
2: never seen <laughs> it's it. It's like Harry Potter, Xbox, Game of Thrones. You are, the, are or you ain't. Yep. Oh,
0: no, I think Harry Potter's a bit different to Game of Thrones. Well, I'm not Harry
2: Potter, I'm not Xbox, I'm not have Game of Thrones. Have you ever seen
0: a Harry Potter movie? No.
2: Best ever.
1: Oh, Never. Yeah, no, I, I, I've
2: I've read one or I've two. I've never plugged in an Xbox or own one.
1: But, oh. but just very quickly on games, I game don't before, even know what an Xbox this, is. This particular exactly. AFL person, I said I just couldn't bear. There was one I watched one bit one day when there was this shocking rape scene, and he said, "Look, I actually I, I had a year off. It was too much, too violent, too vicious." But I think his wife said to him... In Harry Potter? No, no, this is Game of
2: Thrones. (laughs) Oh, sorry, I should keep up. It's
1: very violent. This AFL person's wife said, I can't do it alone anymore. You've got to get back on board with me. So he did. Anyway, Corrie, this is a very odd question. Do you think the Duchess of York is back
0: with Prince Andrew? Yes, I do. On the weekend, Caro, they attended together, arrived together, the wedding of Lady Gabriella Windsor, who's the daughter of Prince Michael of Kent and they arrived at St. George, St George's Chapel together. Now, this may not seem like a big thing to potties, but this is the first time that they have attended a wedding together, and there was a bit of touching of arms and things like that. I think they're definitely back together. So, you know, do we care? <laughs> <laughs> well, well <laughs> it's interesting, kind of, I guess. Um, Brendan, finish this sentence. I love a boys' golf weekend because...
2: Um, I love a boys' golf weekend because of the peace... Uh, the country air, the occasional cocktail, uh, discussions about films and books. and uh, <laughs> Get I all get, that at home. And I get to sleep with my boyfriend without uh, fear of getting caught. <laughs> oh,
0: yeah. The occasional cocktail. Can you imagine them coming in onto the 19th going, oh, I'll just have a brandy dry.
1: That, that is absolute bunkum. You don't even share rooms anymore. You've put your <laughs> hand up and said I'm a single room person.
2: Yeah, I know. It costs a bit more, but it's worthwhile, particularly at <laughs> 4 a.m. What did the boyfriend m. say? Not well, you, you just have to break up. <laughs> but the I think you need a
0: vital smarts burping conversation. Burping and other
2: things going on. Oh, my God. So anyway, as you get older, you need your own room.
1: And um, Brendan's going to enjoy going off to that lovely part of the Victorian countryside.
2: He Beruga. going well has been a fun weekend too. for
1: you, Caro. It certainly does, Corrie. I think I'll be seeing you at one point. I've got the girls girls around for cards on Friday night. I'm having lunch
0: <laughs> with you. I'm very excited. Now, Corrie, what's your GLT? My GLT uh, happens at the Hamer Hall on the 21st of July, Brendan and Caro. It is sing-along sound of music. Yes, it's back. I went to this three years ago. Can I just tell everybody who listens to this podcast, Jane, you would be in here. So the first thing that happens is that you have a costume. Uh, you have Before the movie starts, you have a costume competition. So there are people like there was one guy there who was dressed totally in yellow. He was Ray, a drop of golden sun. Oh, there are various nuns. There's lots of dirndl. Oh, oh. Um, there's lots of Nazis too as well. There was another guy who was dressed up in brown paper paper. Um, and sort of wrapped up and everything. Of course, he was brown paper packages tied up with string. Anyway, um, the, the the Alps won it. These were these guys who put up poles and they had canvas over them, so they were the Swiss Alps, so they won. I'd but, go as a baroness if I was going. <laughs> You'd make a very <laughs> good Eleanor baroness. Eleanor Parker. <laughs> well, do you know what the crowd does? When the movie begins, it's audience participation, so you pss- the Baroness and you boo the Nazis and every time Maria comes on, you yay like this and then there are a lot of funny situations that occur. But anyway, it is a four-hour night, so it's a bit of a marathon, but I highly recommend it. I went with one of my kids. We laughed. We wished we dressed up. We we were so cross that we didn't. So as I said, that is on on the 21st of July and you can book through the Hammer Hall Victorian Arts um, Centre website or whatever it is. That's our very fun show for today. Brendan, thank you for coming along and telling us about all things election. Well, good. What?
1: <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Thanks for coming. You're always a big hit when you come on the show, you Brendan. You are people
0: love you, Brendan.
2: It's my day off.
0: <laughs> oh, well, it's very nice of you to come. Um Caro, thanks for your company. And Jane, thanks, of course, for being, as usual, our wonderful producer. Everybody listening, thanks for your company. Please tell uh, your gang and your family members to subscribe to our podcast because we do love everybody joining our Don't Shoot the Messenger gang. You can send us feedback, comments, tips, and all of that stuff through the Don't Shoot the Messenger Facebook page or via our Instagram account, which is at Don't Shoot Pod. We tweet, which is at don't shoot pod, and you email us, of course, feedback at do Thank you to our show sponsors, Interchange Bench and Vital Smarts. Without your wonderful support, we would not be here. And what do we say, Carol and Brendan? Don't, don't shoot, shoot the messenger. The
2: messenger.
0: Hi, I'm Ann Summers. Hello, this is Laura Tingle. Hi, this is Leanne
1: Moriarty. I'm Jane Harper.
2: Hi, I'm Marcus Suzak. I'm David Maher. Join me on the book pod.
1: I hope you can join
0: Corey Perkin and I on the book pod.
1: I would have been any one of the famous five. I just wanted to have those sorts of adventures because, believe me, nothing like
0: that happened in suburban Caulfield.
1: Always, no matter how abstract the issue, you have to find the narrative and you have to find characters, and around those, you build the story. You know, some authors take a decade to write a book. I would miss the meeting the readers.
0: And I think also people often completely underestimate. If something is easy to read, they think that means it's easy to write. And it's absolutely not is such a skill.
2: Subscribe to the book
1: pod. Subscribe to the book pod in your favorite podcast app.
0: Wherever you listen to
1: podcasts.